Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. While the world and his mother appears to be fixated on Gavin Williamson and the exam results debacle this morning, we alone will be guiding you through the stories that actually matter to you rather than the ones that the media think you should care about. Because let's face it, unless you've got a teenager uh, who's doing exams and waiting for results uh, or you're a teacher of some kind, you don't really care, do you? Far more important to people is when they're going to be able to get back to some kind of normality in life, when they can actually go on holiday somewhere without worrying about what will happen while they're away, uh, how it's possible that 1,200 illegal migrants have crossed the channel so far this month alone, and why there isn't any point in having savings anymore. Unlike the bulk of the mainstream media, these are the stories we're talking about this morning, and we want you to become part of the story as well. So we want to hear from all of you too. I've been batting away lefty teachers this week on social media who are all full of tolerance and fairness about how hard they work, how awful the right wing is, and why the government is a busted flush. Shouldn't they be spending more time in the classroom preparing for everybody to go back to school in September? 0344 499 1000. We'll be checking in with former Sun political editor George Pascoe Watson to test the temperature of the nation. And we'll be asking what on earth is going on in Wuhan. A picture this morning from a water park in China shows they've learned nothing from the outbreak of coronavirus. They're literally on top of one another in a huge swimming pool full of people and rubber rings. Hundreds of them. Hundreds, I tell you. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll be finding out why the NHS is about to spend 10 billion quid in the private sector to help solve the problem of waiting lists and the backlog of treating cancer patients. Plus, we'll bring you the latest on the travel situation uh, with Lisa Francesca Nand, live from southern Spain. And have you got any savings left? We're being told there isn't much point in doing that anymore, so I don't know why you'd bother. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, if you were making the mistake of watching television this morning rather than actually listening to talk radio, if you made the mistake of picking up any of the newspapers this morning rather than listening to talk radio, you'd be forgiven for thinking that there was only one story in town. And that story, of course, centres around the exam results, the way the exam results are going to be worked out, the way the teachers are now going to be given permission to basically tell you what grade you should have got and what grade you will get. 
I'm not interested really in talking about that. I'm not really interested in Gavin Williamson, whether he stays or whether he goes. I'm far more interested in all the other stories uh, which we're going to talk about this morning, uh, which of course revolve around the NHS, the economy, uh, coronavirus, quarantining and travelling. All sorts of things about returning to work, which I think are far more important to discuss while Britain is still limping through uh, an economy which is faltering at the very latest. Uh, we've got 7,000 people being made redundant from Marks and Spencers this morning. Let's talk to George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications, of course, to see whether he agrees with me. George, a very good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Mike. Um, I'm, I'm a bit fed up with this whole, uh, you know, A-level exams nonsense, you know, because like I say, I mean, I've actually got a son who's doing, uh, would have been doing his GCSEs this morning, uh, not this morning, this year. But at the end of the day, unless you've got a kid involved in it or you're a teacher, why is this such a big story? Yeah, like it really matters in a big scale. Of course it does to lots and lots of mums and dads, uh, employers. It also matters to the government in terms of competence. But uh, for the rest of us who don't have kids at that particular age, you know, we've got many, many other issues to deal with in this country. And you are right to focus on them. We look at situations like you just mentioned, Marks and Spencer's getting rid of 7,000 workers. That's a huge number. You say it quickly and we forget it. That's mm. 7,000 real people, men, women, actually more likely to be women than men, I would have thought, in, in the retail industry, and the impact that that will have on their families, on their loved ones, on their quality of life, and that their ability to buy things themselves from other traders and other retailers. This is the beginning of this extremely painful coal period that this country's economy is going to go into. Yes, and also I've been seeing this week more pictures uh, by various people who travel into London because they are still going back to work um, of empty trains, uh, of you know seats vacated, entire carriages with nobody in them, uh, you know entire streets. I was in Westminster uh, in your sort of neck of the woods only last week. There's nobody there. There's nothing open. You know, London is still very much a closed city. It seems to me. Well, London is, and London is not alone. London has it probably more acutely because so many people have to travel a much bigger distance in terms of commuting by train, by tube, uh, into the capital from all parts of the south. And that's a more acute situation. But I think it's true in many, many cities and towns up and down the country. Uh, and whilst people are genuinely scared, worried, nervous about their safety, is it safe to travel? Then I think that's going to be an issue. And of course, the government did a very, very strong job in terms of the communication around stay home, save lives. Now, that stuck with a lot of people. And for the government to try and encourage people to come out now and go back to work is, is a harder deal, particularly as they are also trying to keep the uh, infection rates of, of COVID down so mm. that people can enjoy a holiday. I, I tell you what, Mike, I wouldn't want to be in government. No, it's certainly not a great time to be trying to run the country. And, and, and I'm like you, um, you know, sceptical uh, of, of all of the, uh, the the hard times that the government is getting because an awful lot of it is coming from places where they would be critical anyway. Um, but I think we're right to point out when they do mess things up. But, I mean, overall, the whole Gavin Williamson thing, uh, shall we just talk about it for a second? Um, you know, he appears to have done what everybody wanted him to do. So why people are calling for him to resign uh, rather surprises me. I think the critics would say that uh, the education secretary could have seen this coming and that, uh, like a lot of other uh, criticism of ministers, the question is, did they press, did they uh, cross-examine the experts closely enough when experts were coming up with devices like uh, an algorithm to try and work out what students 
would have got if they'd sat their exams. And, and that's the real point. Uh, you know, Gavin Williamson is not an education specialist. Mm. We've had transport secretaries for many years in this country who don't even have driver's licenses. The, the job <laughs> is not to understand the business inside out like yeah. an expert. It's to take advice from the experts and cross-examine the experts to test whether those experts are right or not. And that is the accusation. But, uh, you know, the fact is, it's a, it's one government. Uh, they've all been uh, involved in this discussion together. I'm pretty sure Gavin Williamson uh, will stand the test of time and they don't want to get rid of him. He's a very, very loyal figure to Boris Johnson. Yes. And I mean, how are you how are you feeling about Boris Johnson at the moment? He's away uh, up in Scotland. Some people are saying he shouldn't be on holiday. Um, but many people would say, well, he's had a pretty tough year so far. So he's maybe entitled to a week off every so often. Um, and I'm sure he's not really having a holiday like the most of us have a holiday uh, because he's probably talking to people all the time. Um, but, you know, there's been a few wobbles lately. Um, and certainly a lot of the people that I have seen supporting the government, particularly uh, particularly over this migrant crisis, are beginning to move away from the government in terms of supporting it uh, without sort of any conditions? Well, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. First thing to say is all prime ministers need a break. All human beings need a break. There's no question mm. about it. The prime minister nearly died this year. He had a baby. Uh, uh, he got divorced, you know, and he won a general election in the last 12 months. So he, the and guy he, t- and he took break. us out of the EU after all. Uh, exactly. And, and, he, and he needs a break. And so I think that's fair enough. And it's not really a break when you're prime minister, let's be honest. He's up in Scotland, uh, freezing and being bitten by midges for the, <laughs> the brand new baby. Who, who would fancy that? Yeah, really. Um, so the reality is, on a question of migration, this is a massively complex issue. And it is true that some uh, supporters of the government are very frustrated by what they see as an inability to act. But pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, is doing a fantastic job. And I can tell you, and your listeners, that nobody gets the, uh, the, the need to be hawkish on illegal immigration better than Pretty Patel. Mm. And what she gets also is that there are millions of hardworking families in this country who pay their taxes, who do their duties, for whom Ill- illegal immigration is a blight. It is also a blight on genuine asylum seekers who need our help, and we rightly offer our help. But when you have criminal gangs uh, being allowed to peddle uh, this entire industry and put uh, other people's lives at risk. It's not right, but the legal system in this country, coupled with the EU membership, makes it fiendishly hard mm. for the Home Secretary and for any government to fix the problem. And the French government are not a help in this, I have to say. We are pro- pro- offering the French government millions of pounds of taxpayers' money, which they want but they don't want any oversight from the UK. So Mm. they'll take our money to try and help deal with the crisis, but they won't allow the British police or the border force to have any oversight on how that money is spent. That is a norm from our perspective. So it's a very, very hard situation. All Pretty Patel can really do with Boris Johnson is devise new rules, which we will be able to have thanks to leaving the EU in January. And that's what will happen. Yes, I mean, Nigel Farage was on the show yesterday saying the law needs to be changed and until the law is changed, there's not really very much that, that anybody will be able to do. But we had a very interesting call yesterday uh, from a lady in Liverpool who said that, you know, what really gets up people's noses is the amount of money that's being spent uh, on these people because it may well be we can't stop them coming. However, uh, is it really necessary to put them up in hotels? Is it really necessary to give them, you know, £37 a week subsistence? Because she was saying she'd like to give up her job and look after her elderly father who suffers from uh, dementia but she can't afford to do it and if she did do it the government would pay her the equivalent of about 70 pounds a month 
um, which wouldn't be enough for her to be able to do it. So there's a disconnect going on and people are looking at this situation because it's now being made clear to them and they're saying this is not fair. And they're right to say that it's not fair and it isn't fair. And uh, as I said, Pretty Patel gets that it isn't fair more than many people in and around politics. And that's why she's working very hard. But that's no uh, solace to the to the lady who rang you to say what she said. But of course, this is the problem with government. It is not always joined up. And mm. most, many of the times it's not. And it's only when a crisis really becomes the number one thing in a minister's inbox or even a prime minister's inbox uh, that uh, action can be taken. And of course, this government has taken on board uh, one hell of a lot of uh, change. It's trying to change the the way the civil service works, it's trying to deal with a pandemic that nobody's ever had to deal with before. It's got uh, security issues, it's got China to deal with, it's got the schooling uh, issue. Back to school, by the way, you, I, today I can say that the exams fiasco and crisis will be uh, as nothing mm. if we can't get all our kids back to school in a couple of weeks' time, because that's when it really does impact uh, many, many more people in this country, the ability to go back to work, and also a lost generation uh, of kids' mm. education. So they've got a lot on their plate, and, and it, it makes it very hard to be joined up. Uh, but it is, it is moments like this of acute crisis through immigration, through social care, so that people begin to see in government there is potentially a way forward and a way to move forward. Yes, I think you're absolutely right, because it is, as with every week that goes by, um, there's a sort of a, it's, I don't want to use the phrase the new normal because I don't really like it, but, but there's, it's almost as though we are working through uh, this extraordinary time, um, almost oblivious to the fact that it's so extraordinary. And we do, and, and there's so much coming at us mm. that it's hard to process it yeah. and take stock of it, and that's why I guess... We need sort of political commentators and historians to look back and try and learn the lessons of what we're going through right now. It makes it very hard for ministers in real time to make the right calls and make the right decisions. And inevitably, mistakes will be made. And what we really care about is, yes, them getting things right, but also is their heart in the right place? Are they putting their shoulder to the wheel? Are they grafting? Uh, or are they basically subletting the whole thing to others? And that, that is unacceptable if that's happening. I know this government mainly is actually putting its shoulder to the wheel and trying to make the right decisions. But I think it'll be t it'll, it'll take time. That We've got many, many more dark months to go, Mike. I mean, that's the sad truth. Mm. I, I wish I could come on the show and be really upbeat and optimistic. But, you know, people are rationally making decisions uh, about a future which they know is going to be really tough. And we've got a chancellor who, although he's very, very popular right now in opinion polls, is going to have to make some seriously big calls in the coming months which is going to mean pain for lots and lots of businesses. There is a view in the government, I think probably, unfortunately, rightly, that that the longer we can carry on postponing the, the pain in terms of recovery, the deeper the pain is going to be when it eventually has mm. to be paid back. And I think that 2021 will be a grim year. Well, quite. And also the uh, furlough schemes are going to come to an end in September. Uh, we're probably going to see more um, unemployment in that uh, period of time, no doubt. But also... Um, in terms of your, your companies that you represent and that you talk to um, and, and the financial sector of, of London, you know, yes, there is still business kind of ticking over and there's still business being done. Um, but we're now hearing that, you know, office occupation is probably unlikely to be uh, happening until maybe March. Well, there are some businesses uh, who have decided they're not going to go back until June, July next year. Yeah. And that's that may even change. So there is a phenomenal change going on. It turns out lots of businesses have worked out that they can actually do pretty well 
not having people in in a headquarters and and whether we like that or not that's a fact they are able to to train and do what they do in that way particularly in a more technologically advanced uh, country but there are whole swathes of the economy who are doing okay actually right now and we shouldn't forget that so in the world of uh, life science which is a really really important part of the economy for this uh, for this country they're doing well there's there are huge areas which are doing very well indeed and, and we shouldn't forget that we should be supportive of that as the government begins to look at how we can transition our economy uh, and have more businesses which are frankly fit for the future and delivering uh, and, and not being propped up. It is a real moment though where some industries which have been struggling and don't have the right, we say, fundamentals uh, to, to exist in the modern world are having to take some really big harsh decisions. Mm. And that's why we're seeing things like Debenhams fall over there's a big row going on about private equity right now and whether or not private equity guys should be uh, allowed to, to, to borrow uh, taxpayers' uh, money to keep the businesses they support going because uh, they've got very deep pockets. So there's much in the treasury that they need to sort out in terms of the economy. But it, it is a fundamental moment of change and people are uncomfortable with change. But change norm normally leads to, to good things in the future. Absolutely right. George, thanks very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson, former political editor of The Sun, chairman of Portland Communications, talking to us about how, yes, there will be some grim times ahead, uh, but yes, the government is stewarding us through them as best they can. You know, pay no attention to those who say, oh, they've made a right mess of the A-level results, they've made a right mess of the GCSEs, they've made a right mess of all these algorithms. An awful lot of this stuff uh, does not matter to the huge bulk of people of this country. People of this country are far more interested uh, in something that we discovered yesterday afternoon, which is basically uh, that uh, Pretty Patel uh, did not know, as Nigel Farage revealed to us yesterday, uh, that there were any uh, illegal asylum seekers, illegal migrants being housed in her own constituency because the Home Office didn't bother to tell her that that's what they were doing. She found out about it, apparently, on Friday. Now, Nigel Farage visited the hotel in question in Pretty Patel's constituency on Thursday. They say, of course, that their reaction uh, and their decision to move these uh, asylum seekers uh, was not in any way driven by the fact that Nigel Farage showed up and started filming. Uh, I would beg to differ on that one, but, you know, we can beg to differ and, and have a different view of that. But certainly it shows you how ridiculous the situation has become if the Home Office have decided they can basically go around the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and put some people into her constituency, put them up in a hotel, and she doesn't even get to be told about it. What an extraordinary state of affairs. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to talk to Bruce Williamson now from uh, Rail Future because uh, there's talk uh, of train fares being frozen, train fares being given the same kind of treatment as restaurants were by the, by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak uh, to try and get people back on them. Uh, Bruce, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Mike? It is. I mean, I keep seeing pictures uh, which rather disturb me of empty trains coming into London during rush hour. I mean, I've got friends who, who travel in and have been working through the pandemic uh, who said that at the very start of the lockdown, they were the only people on them. Now they say there's maybe six other people on them as well as them. It's an incredibly kind of uh, depressing thought, isn't it? Well, it is really. And, you know, you, you, you make the case very well when you say that the uh, Chancellor has been giving... Um, you know, incentives for pretty much every other sector of industry to recover mm. from this this pandemic, and yet the rail the rail, the rail industry um, again is facing further disincentives 
for passengers to travel on the trains when the when the prices go up in January. Yes. I mean, it's going to be tricky, isn't it, for the rail companies? Because already, I presume, they're all in a pretty bad way financially because nobody's been spending any money. We know, for example, the transport for London uh, here in the capital is more or less bankrupt because nobody's using the tube. Well, indeed. Uh, when it comes to the train companies, it's a bit of a different story because they're now on a, a kind of fixed-term contract, a fixed-price contract. Right. So when it comes to ticket revenue, it's now the government or the Department for Transport that's, that's taking that hit. Because clearly, if franchises were carrying on as normal, all the rail companies would be, would be out of business now. They'd all be bankrupt. Yeah, right. They'd so, have no, you know, no revenue. Right. But I mean, so if you're running a rail company at the moment, are, yeah. you're, are, are you still more or less satisfied that you're still going to make the money that you would have made regardless uh, of whether anybody's on the trains or not then? Yeah, exactly. Okay, because they're being paid a, a, a pretty good business to run the train. Yeah, they're fine. It's not the train companies, but yeah. it's, it's the sort of the rail industry as a whole, the, the rail network. You know, that we that we need to sort of take a look at. Really, mm, absolutely right. And so, I mean, what in your view would be a reason to get people back onto to uh, to the to the trains? Because clearly, the, the the roads are mega busy at the moment because people just are still travelling. They're just not using public transport. Well, indeed. I mean, there is still this social distancing health problem that we, you know, we can't ignore. The coronavirus is still out there. We don't have a cure. We don't have a vaccine. So we, we still need to t- take health measures on the trains. But I suppose we're taking a sort of slightly longer term view. Mm. You know, this pandemic will be over one day and we want to have a railway network that is viable and, and you know, gives a decent service to passengers and crucially, which is affordable and which attracts passengers. And there's another very key element to this as well, which is the environment. The, the the government wants to go carbon neutral. Well, if you want environmentally friendly transport, then it's got to be rail, you know, because that, you know, that can be electric, it can be powered by wind and solar, it can be absolutely pollution free. But the government needs to invest in it and encourage people to use the trains rather than our polluted, congested road network. Well, you can't really tell me that they haven't invested in the railway network, given how much money they're spending on HS2 and uh, the Crossrail project, which is still going ahead, as far as I'm aware. Yes, it is. And, you know, you're absolutely right. There, there are, <coughs> excuse me, there are examples of investment, which is happening on the rail, which is very welcome. But, you know, it, it's, it's got to continue. And we've got to actually persuade passengers to use the network. You know, there's no, there's no use sort of investing in shiny new trains if you're then pricing people off them. Yeah. And then people go but back also, to But also, is there any point in finishing Crossrail, given the fact that nobody's actually coming to London at all? Oh, well, yeah, again, take, take a long-term view. Yeah, I mean, right now, there's probably no need for it. But, mm. you know, in a year, six months, whatever, uh, there definitely will be that need for it. Yeah, we, we desperately need the extra capacity that Crosswell will bring. And, and we desperately need the extra capacity, you know, across other parts of the network Well, I'm not so well. sure, you know, because you and I may have to have this conversation in a year's time. Mm. Uh, because an awful lot of people, an awful lot of companies are getting more and coming more and more around to the idea and the notion uh, that they can save themselves quite a few bob by having lots of people working from home and actually not bringing them back into offices and not renting huge amounts of office space because they don't need it. Well, there's no, excuse me, there's no doubt that, uh, I haven't got the virus, by the way, I don't think so. I'm glad to hear it. You know, that times have changed and and people's work habits have changed as well. But I think, you know, you've also heard anecdotally that people are sort of going mad at home. You know, the kids are driving them mad. They can't work properly. They just want to sort of get to the office for that sort of break um, and and to sort of socialise and meet their co-workers and so on. And I'm very confident that in the longer term, uh, even though work patterns will be permanently changed, that, that the passenger numbers will return to rail. 
Uh, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't live in London, but, I mean, I, I suspect there are certain tube lines that right now are still pretty busy. You they're know, so they're not. You, no, they're actually not. I mean, that's, that's the surprising oh. thing, is that right. the, 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 the streets are still quite busy, and trying to yeah. get in and out of London in a car is an absolute nightmare. Um, and most... Uh, I don't use the underground very much, but every time I do use it, and I have used it at rush hour, um, yeah. you'd be amazed at how, how uncrowded it is. <laughs> Well, okay, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take your, I'll take your uh, local knowledge on that. But, you know, nonetheless, I still remain optimistic that passenger numbers will return mm. in, in, in two or three years' time. But kind of the longer this goes on, though, the more people get used to it and the less likely it is to go back to normal. Well, um, yeah, uh, time, time will tell, really, won't it? You know, but um, I, I, what, what can I say? I still think, you know, that the, the, the future for the railway is rosy um, if, you, if you take a long-term view and you invest in it. Well, certainly, if you get paid, uh, regardless of how many people you actually manage to transport, that's a pretty good deal for a railway company. So uh, I guess for them, there's no incentive for them to rush back uh, to get people back on the trains. That's, it's, a, it's an incredible deal, that. Well, uh, you know, there, there are, it's, it's not quite as good as that. I mean, there will be performance-related measures, so yeah. they will be paid on the basis of punctuality. And generally speaking, um, there are examples of that, you know, TfL and I think uh, Mersey Rail and so on, which have run on that basis. Uh, of a sort of fixed price contract and it does seem to be it does seem to work out better and i'm pretty confident that we are not you know the government haven't announced this but you know reading between the lines i don't think they're going to go back to franchising i think the long-term future of the railway is is in fixed-term contracts yeah well we shall see bruce thanks very much indeed for talking to us bruce williamson there uh, from campaign group rail future Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very good morning to our favourite GP, Mr Lawrence Buckman. I should say Dr Lawrence Buckman, really. Lawrence, very good morning to you. Good morning. Now, I dare say there will be those, and I'm I'm hoping you won't be one of them, uh, who will say this is the thin end of the wedge, this is the beginning of the sell-off of the NHS. Seems to me to be perfectly reasonable for the NHS um, to sort of to encompass, if you like, some sections of private medicine uh, to help itself get out of this waiting list problem. Right. It's not quite like that. Firstly, I don't think it's the beginning of the wedge. We're well into the wedge. The wedge started uh, under Prime Minister Blair. Mm. um, And so if you want to look at it as the thin end of a wedge, I'm afraid we're getting towards the thick end. (laughs) I think we just forget that and move on to the fact that what they're doing is they haven't got capacity in the NHS to clear any waiting list backlog. So the only way they can do it is to take the doctors who had private sessions and get them to do that work outside NHS facilities because the NHS isn't big enough. Now, if you took a much bigger view, you would say it would have been better to have put the money into the NHS and have the work done there. But the reality is that takes years, and we're talking about a backlog that's here today. And so the only way out is to use whatever capacity you've got, private or NHS, to start taking away the waiting lists. But the problem with putting more money into the NHS uh, uh, is, Lawrence, is it not, that it's just like putting money into a giant sort of money shredder because it's got so much money already that putting in any more just doesn't really seem to make any difference. And it's an incredibly inefficient organisation. So this way, at least, it will be spent, I would hope, more efficiently. Yes, I mean, I think in principle, there's nothing wrong with what you've just said. The fact is that at the end of it, there are, and some people don't like this, uh, there are private shareholders who stand to make money out of it as opposed to anybody else. But I would almost park that. The key issue is that however much money you put into the NHS, it will be too slow Mm. 
to respond to what is now, I'm guessing, a two-year backlog, yes. something like that. Right. Because, uh, and, and I would have preferred the money to have been invested in the NHS probably years ago so that it would have had the capacity to deal with it. But the, we're, the reality is today not what we would have wished if it could have been like that. No, I mean, what nobody has done really over the decades, and, and if we, even if you want to go all the way back to Tony Blair and even before that, is really streamlined the NHS and made it a, a, a properly efficient organisation. It still has way too many levels of middle management. It still has way too much kind of repetition of jobs that people do. And I'm not talking about the clinicians or the or the actual frontline medical people, but, but just everything in the back room, you know? Well, much of that was made worse. Uh, we have to go back before Tony Blair to Mrs. Yeah. Thatcher, right. who introduced market reforms, because you then had buying and selling of services. We'd never had that before. Yeah. And that um, is, is, that's what made the bureaucratic numbers rise steeply, because there's a whole industry behind the doctors, nurses and porters and everybody else actually buying and selling services to purchasers. Yeah. And that purchaser-provider divide was thought to make it more efficient. In my view, it made it less efficient. And we're now reaping the benefit of that. Uh, obviously, at the time, nobody could have anticipated this. But it, it, it's too late to wring our hands and say, oh, it would have been better if we, mm. you know, it would have been better if we wouldn't have done this. But we're where we are today. Yes. And so we have to come up with solutions for today, not to look back with regret or blame um, because, it's, it, it, frankly, it's pointless. No, I get that. But surely it wouldn't be beyond the wit of man to look at it now in the in the cold light of day as we are in 2020 and say, look, let's really try and make this a much more efficient organisation. Why isn't that being done? Well, I think, well, uh, I think the purchaser-provider divide, as it's called, those people who commission services and those who provide them, that, that industry... Um, it is is a parasite that feeds off the NHS. Mm. And the way you would streamline it is something that this government, I cannot imagine, would ever tolerate, which was, would be a revert to a single business. In other words, there was the NHS. Um, it was independent of government. That's never going to happen. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, um, the purchasers and the providers would disappear in, in, in the way that they used to be, which is that originally... Area health services were commissioned by a very, very small number of civil servants mm. who planned what went on. Now, that system obtained for, for many years uh, under, under governments of both colours. Um, and um, if you ask me what's the ideal arrangement, that would be far more efficient. You'd lose whole tranches of administration that way and you would probably save quite a lot of money too. Yes, because I think most people would be more than happy uh, with the NHS as it is now, uh, but with more money actually going to the front line uh, of, of the medical business rather than paying extraordinary amounts of money out to private individuals uh, or private companies that you're buying stuff in from. Because as ever, anything that seems to be involved in the public sector, you know, the prices that they end up paying. I mean, I just found out today, for example, that the rail companies are paid a flat fee, basically, to run the railways by the government, regardless of how many people they have as passengers. Yes, I mean, that's, that's just baffling. Yeah. Well, it's quite similar structure in the NHS. And I'm afraid... Um, uh, um, the uh, governments of both shades over recent decades have been very much enthralled to the market way of doing things. And 
if you want to take away the bureaucracy, you have to take away the thing it feeds off. And that requires a political will, which I am almost certain the current government would never, ever agree to. No, that's probably true. But as far as the cancer patients are concerned, um, this is good news for them. Although I see uh, Dr. Carol Sakura is quoted in the Times piece this morning saying it's a bit too late for this year's patients. But how much of a problem is that? I think it's a huge problem. Hmm. I think if you look at the number of people who've not been coming to their doctor, uh, who've not been presenting or even going to hospital... The number of people who are out there with things they haven't taken to another medical human mm. to look at uh, must be, just purely on statistical grounds, there must be an awful lot of people out there who are going to present with late disease. And those people will be much harder to treat, much harder to cure, have a less good outlook. Um, it's not their fault, of course. Mm. It's, it's nobody's fault. Uh, but there it is, and, you know, we want the patients to come rolling in. We, you know, please, come and say hello to your GP. Yes. I mean, for a long time, we, we had the sort of the logjam, didn't we, of people not being referred quickly enough. That seems to have got better, um, but there still seems to be a bit of a, a sort of a hold-up and a logjam further down the line now. Yes, I mean, I think there are two logjams. One is people not coming and saying hello to their GP, and the other is that the hospitals... Are temporarily are not geared to delivering investigations quick enough. Right. Uh, so if you come to me with a thing, I can get you seen within two weeks. Um, that's a, and that two-week wait is not as tight as it used to be. It used to be guaranteed. Yeah. It's guaranteed now, but the reality is some people wait more than two weeks, mm. but not very much more. And certainly if I think it's urgent, we can make it happen quicker. But once you've got into that system... The, the technology has been so focused on handling COVID mm. and the wards are so focused on handling COVID that there aren't the number of investigation beds, there aren't the number of investigative bits of gear in the right places, which is where the private sector comes in, um, where they can do these things. Indeed, the Nightingale hospitals, some of them are being turned over to being cancer investigation centres. Right. And that actually is a very good use of the facility. While it's not being used for COVID, it might as well be used for something else. And so there, that's more capacity that can be used to deliver better care for patients. But it, it starts with patients thinking there's something not quite right and go and see your doctor please we're yes. all open for business but i'd like to think as well that there could be lessons learned from from how quickly and and how e easily the nhs was able to kind of turn its attention to covid19 and and to prepare itself um to, to deal with loads and loads of patients who fortunately in the end didn't really come um and that would be presumably like a template where you say well can we not do that now with cancer patients yeah absolutely right yeah there, and if you take away the bureaucratic fog, which I have to describe as swimming in treacle, really. Yeah, right. If you take that away, if you, if you stop saying it can't be done, mm. it can be done. Um, and there is no good reason why you can't do that with lots of other things. Yeah. Oh, we can't do this because it's not in our budget this year. Well, do you need this piece of equipment must come first. Yeah. Not how do we wiggle it around a budget for this year or next year. Yes. We've got a huge problem with budgets just the same as local authorities mend the roads in March because they've got to spend all the money by April. Yeah. Um, it, the, the NHS works exactly the same way, and you find suddenly things happen. Why, why is that happening? What, what's that about? Um, you know, who, who authorised that? And yet other things that appear to be a higher priority 
which I would count cancer investigations definitely yeah. being higher than most other things, seem to drop backwards. Mm. Well, we haven't got the space, and you know this department's getting this machine this year, so that one will get one next year. Uh, if you stop saying it can't be done, it can be done. But this is why I think if it's a question of budgets and it's a question of money, then surely this is the time to try and streamline out of the problem uh, the, the, the people who are, who are fogging everything up, i.e. the middle management. Yeah. The, the difficulty with that, as I've said, is I don't believe the present government uh, would, would countenance such a change. I just don't... They, they are never going to walk away from this model which is, which is marketization of the health service. Forget privatization, mm. yes or no. This is the way the market works, and I, I just don't think they're going to consider it as an option. We've just seen them switch a large piece of the public health service into uh, something that resembles the private sector. Mm. And, and, you know, that's their decision. Um, I'm not sure they're right, but that's their decision. Uh, I can't imagine they're going to say, let's do away with the, the market split in the NHS. I just no. don't see it. And how is the NHS as far as the COVID situation at the moment? Because it seems to have weathered the storm. Um, you know, there are those who say there might be another second wave coming. There might not be. Nobody seems very sure. Um, you know, but, but at, at the moment, it seems as though um, the NHS is, is in relatively good shape, isn't it? It's, it's in very good shape. The emergency COVID service... Um, for which I work some of the time, um, assesses patients from all over the country. And there's no doubt that there are definite clusters. We're seeing cases in children, um, not, not particularly sick ones, but we're seeing cases in children. Um, and uh, there seems to be a rise amongst younger people and therefore a fall in the death rate because, of course, younger people tend not to die. I know some do, but mm. most don't. Right. And so I think the NHS is in good shape now. Um, the emergency service is much better organised. Uh, it wasn't at first, but it is now. Um, and I think we're ready for what could be a second wave, but I'm not sure it will be now. I think we may have squashed it so flat that we may be now looking at outbreaks. The worry is you get an outbreak in a food factory, like 300 people all get it in one go in Northampton. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's very alarming because that, you know, if you can do it to 300, those 300 people can meet another 300 people and, and suddenly you've got a massive outbreak and then you risk older people. Yeah. But then we will probably have to be risking that for the rest of time, perhaps. I mean, the question I keep getting asked by people is how many, um, if we know the number, you may not. I certainly don't. How many people who have been quarantining after coming back from holiday have actually tested positive for the virus? No idea. Um, is anyone even checking that? I don't think so, no. I, a good question you might ask is, shouldn't they be checking it? To which my answer would be, yes, yeah. they should. Well, exactly. Uh, but they haven't been, as far as I know. Um, so I couldn't begin to tell you. I mean, you can't do much tracking and tracing if you don't know what anybody's uh, got or who, who's got it. Well, particularly if you don't know who's importing it. Right. Um, and I believe that importation is going to be a major risk coming the second wave, which we're now seeing. I mean... Given that the government has decided to allow people to go on holiday mm. to some countries... Um, An ever-decreasing number of countries, as Well, it said. does look like it's falling, doesn't it, as, yeah. as the numbers rise. Um, given that they've decided to do that, really, you should be tracking and tracing every single returnee. Mm. I appreciate that's a lot of people. But the fact is, if you don't do that, you don't know who's carrying and who isn't mm. carrying. No. 
quite. And, and probably that... quite a lot of the, 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 the difficulty is that you can come in healthy and, and bring the disease with you anyway. Yes. No, that's the part of the problem. But, I mean, that's, this is why, you know, on the one hand, you've got ministers saying, you know, we've got to test everybody, we've got to track everybody, trace everybody. And then on the other hand, they're saying, well, there's no point testing them when they come into the airport because they might still have it and test negative. Well, if, that, if that's the case, you might as well not bother testing at all. Yeah, the argument, of course, is then any logical medical process would test twice. Yes. You test once and at a week later, you test them again. And that's the way you stop that. But you should be testing them on arrival and then a week later. Mm. Then you could stamp out imported cases. Um, that's some way away. I don't think we will be living with this forever. No. Because once a vaccine is safe, effective and available, which realistically means next year about this time, um, by the time it's rolled out across all the various patient groups, um, then... then uh, then things will return to a, mm. some kind of normal, but right. there will still be cases. Yes, of course. Dr Lawrence Buckman, thanks very much indeed. Former chair of the BMA GP's committee and North London GP himself now. Um, the point about the NHS is surely there has to be a time when you look at it and go, it's way too big, it's way too inefficient, it spends way too much money on things it doesn't need to spend money on. Let us try and save that money. I'm not suggesting that we take money out of it, but we take money from the middle management and the amounts of money that are spent on uh, kind of, you know, outsourcing and all the rest of it, paying nurses, nursing agencies instead of paying nurses salaries and way over the odds for all sorts of medicine uh, and, and uh, medications and give that money to the front uh, It is time now, make though, it a, uh, for a bit of homeschooling because, uh, Surely, of course, we know the school holidays are upon us, but you still may have your children around you, uh, around the television, around the radio. You may be sitting there wondering what to do with them. Well, every day here at 12.30 on Talk Radio, on the Independent Republic, uh, we get somebody in to talk about a subject which is their particular area of expertise. And today, I'm delighted to say, uh, we're going to talk to Dale Gibson, who's the founder of Bermondsey Street Bees. And he's going to tell us all about the bee business, uh, because bees, I have to say, uh, are fascinating creatures. Uh, and let's say a very good afternoon to him. Dale, hi, how are you? Yeah, good afternoon, Mike. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thanks very much for joining us. Bermondsey Street, not a million miles away from uh, from where we are right now, just overlooking London Bridge. Um, so um, I've heard a lot about sort of urban beekeeping and seen sort of various different reports about people putting beehives on roofs and things like that. Is that is that what you do? Sure. Well, some of what we do is putting beehives on roofs, but we do it with, with a real uh, consideration about sustainability. Mm. So plonking a hive on a roof in London could very well be part of the problem, not part of the solution. Okay. The reason for that is that in London we have the most dense population of honeybees of any city in Europe and quite possibly the world. Mm. So that means that around Bermondsey Street, you have around 4,000 hives registered with the government around a 10-kilometer radius. That is a highly dense honeybee environment. So the main priority we have, as we see, as we see in the human population, a big increase in disease in bees in the last few years, yeah. very sort of COVID sensed, um, as we all are as beekeepers, and we see stresses on bees. And so we encourage people and corporates to plant for honeybees rather than pile in more bees on rooftops. Uh, so we say, you know, it's much better to be a planter 
than a plonker. Mm. That's a very good uh, slogan. I like it. Um, I, I wonder as well whether the good thing about London, even though it is a very populous place, populated place, is it has got a bit of green space. I mean, even just around Bermondsey Street, there's a couple of little parks. Um, I presume that's good for bees or help, helpful for them, is it? Absolutely. And what people sort of misconceive is that um, bees are beholden to wildflowers for their food. Mm. So if you analyse our honey from the middle of Bermondsey Street, over 90% of the pollens, there are 36 different pollens in it in the analysis, are from trees and shrubs. Mm. So those are the important food sources for bees, and that's historically where they've evolved from, trees. So no big surprise there. But most of the public seem to think that wildflowers will solve a problem for bees and other pollinators to um, be well stocked with food. Right. The reality is that uh, we can't do that in London in sufficient quantity to get that job done. We have to concentrate on the trees and on perennial plantings such as shrubs and um, you know, small orchards or whatever, to try and make that a, a, a resource which we can rely on and is low maintenance. Okay. And you talk about honeybees. How many different kinds of bees are there? Well, in the world, there are about sort of, uh, well, 25,000 different varieties of wow. bee, of which only seven are the honeybee. Okay. And in this country, we have only one honeybee, and that is the sort of Apis mellifera, and that's native to this country. It's unique amongst the other 260 varieties of British bee insofar as it overwinters as a live colony. And the reason it does that is it because it stores honey and the, it keeps on storing honey until there's no more nectar to bring in to turn into honey. Right. And so responsible beekeepers who are sustainably minded will be able to take that surplus honey not the core honey they need to live over the winter and start up building up in the spring, but to be able to um, responsibly harvest honey for human consumption. Sometimes, like a, a wine harvest or an olive oil harvest, there isn't any. You have to live with that as a farmer uh, when you're uh, looking after bees. So, yeah, I mean, it's important to recognise that honey is a really delicious Let's face it, it's mankind's original luxury food. Mm. When the first human worked on two feet, uh, honey was there available in its current form. And it's very nutritious. It's very delicious. It's very versatile. You can turn it into alcohol. You can uh, store it because under the wax, it won't go off if you keep it out of the air. And so uh, it has a remarkable history with human beings. Mm. And we want to maintain that on a sustainable basis in London and whether it's rooftops we don't recommend people putting hives on roofs over six stories high why because that's where the treetops are mm. guess where the bees came from let's give them what they naturally want in the environment and you know uh, there are uh, different methodologies of looking after bees on rooftops they're more arid they're more windy and so you have to take precautions to make sure the bees don't suffer from those two aspects so, you know, there's a lot of planning involved. There's a lot of learning involved in beekeeping. If you want to become a beekeeper, that's great. But I would say you need to be studying for at least a year with an experienced beekeeper mm. or a beekeeping organization before you embark on keeping bees on your own. Okay. If you substitute the word cow for bee, you wouldn't go <laughs> be a cattle farmer if you didn't know anything about cattle. 
No. Don't make the same mistake with bees. No, absolutely. They are fascinating creatures, though, I think, for, for, for almost for everyone, really. Um, and if there were not um, hives where, where, they, where they sort of create the honeycombs and everything, would they just create those honeycombs elsewhere in trees or, or, or it's sort of in particular bushes or anything like that? Yeah, I think, you know, when people say save the bees, we always have to ask what sort of bees they're talking about, because, as I say, there's a lot of managed honeybees in London, very few wild honeybee nests. The trouble with wild honeybees is that um, disease transmission can be a problem. I mean, there are aspects about bees frequently swarming, which mm. are good for disease, um, but it also causes a massive inconvenience. So unmanaged bees will be inclined to swarm. Uh, they will be inclined to harbor disease, which is unchecked and unsupervised um, by, by human beings. Um, and they tend not to breed the best uh, bloodlines mm. because they only have one nest choose from, whereas we have a lot of different um, queen bee characteristics which we can breed from. So I mean, if I manage 84 hives, I have 84 choices of queen bee, mm. whereas um, a beehive itself only has one choice, what's in the hive. Right. And as far as the uh, hives go, 65 pounds of surplus honey, uh, I'm told they make each year, which is a, an awful lot of honey. Um, is there um, a sort of universal flavour that honey has, or does it? Does it? I mean, can you make can you make it taste different? I suppose is is my question. Yeah, sure. You can if you limit the bees' um, access to one particular food supply, mm. then the honey will taste of that monocultural food. So, for example, in Italy, you get acacia honey. Uh, in France, you get big chestnut uh, honey. Mm. Um, but, but in the UK, it's really difficult. We don't have as much land and space. And we tend to have multi-floral honeys because the bees have access in the two or three miles around their hive, which is their terroir. They can't fly any further than that and bring back food, which will be a positive, i.e. they spend more energy getting it mm. and actually harvesting it. So each hive will have the flavor of that locality imbued in the honey. Uh, so it's like a wine. It's um, a, an absolute product of the terroir. So you're right. The honey will taste different from different places and it will have different food at different times of year. So the honey from the same hive at different times of year will be the product of different flavours available to the bees. Okay. And how long do bees live? What's their sort of life cycle? Queen bees about three years of productive life. Unfortunately, though, bees work so hard in the summer that the lifetime of a summer bee is about 40 days. Mm. So the reason for that is they're flying hard at the end of their life. But in the interim, they use their bodies to make wax. Wax is a very complex chemical. It's a chemical symbols as long as a Welsh railway station name. <laughs> and the bees make it in their own bodies. Right. So it takes a lot of energy and a lot of um, oomph out of them. They also make royal jelly from glands in their head. And that, again, is a complex chemical reaction for a superfine sugar, which breeds uh, queen bees as their perpetual diet, as they're developing. So, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of aspects of, of, of that bee, which means that the summer bee is working really hard all the time. And the winter bee, the sort of bees being born now to carry through the winter into the spring, don't have to make any wax because the nest is shrinking. They don't have to make any royal jelly because queens are all mated you can't get them biologically to mate in the winter and they don't you know do all that flying so luckily uh, those guys will last for nine months whereas the summer ones only last for 40 days mm. and can you tell them apart bees i know this is a weird question but can you can you sort of recognize individual bees 
uh, well, certainly there are some really different, there are three different castes of bee, queen bee, drone, which is the male bee, and the worker bee, which mm. is female. So the female bee can often be mistaken for wasps, um, although they are hairier, generally a lot friendlier, mm. and um, they are sort of um, the busy bees you see flying for food. They're the only ones who go out and get food. Right. The male bees, they're sort of hairier, They've got blunt back ends, they don't have a sting, and they have big goggle eyes at the front since their only job is to mate with a queen bee on the wing, at which point the male bee dies. Um, and the queen bee, um, she's longer, different colored legs, she's got a bigger abdomen where her ovaries uh, produce up to 2,000 eggs a day at the height of summer. Mm. And uh, that's more than her own body weight. So her metabolism is firing away with the bees feeding her copiously so that she pumps out these eggs uh, at um, the, the peak of summer and then goes down to a very low, low rate in the winter. So yeah, those are three different castes of bees. You can recognize those, but down to individual bees, um, it's, it's not easy. I mean, we put uh, every year a different color marker on the thorax of the queen bee. That's the bit between her head and her abdomen. Mm. That means we can see her in a busy hive. It tells us which year she was born. So this year's color was blue. So blue queens are gonna last for another two years after this. And um, you know, if you've got a, a white queen in your hive, you should seriously think about replacing it now before winter comes mm. because it's probably not gonna make it. Okay. And if anyone's listening to this thinking, yeah, I might fancy trying a bit of this, is there a, an organization they should approach to see where the local sort of beekeepers are in their neighbourhood? Absolutely. There's a, a nationwide organisation called the British Beekeepers Organisation, and you can go online at bbk.org.uk. And those guys will then be able, when you put your postcode in, to tell you um, where access to your local beekeeping education system is. So they're called beekeeping associations. Uh, most of them are charities, and they're there to provide education, support, and, um, you know, just informal knowledge base for people to enjoy their beekeeping and not feel that they're, you know, doing it all on their own uh, without any uh, experienced beekeepers to work with them. So, you know, we, we, we absolutely think that that is the best way for anybody to go. Please don't jump in with both feet and then find out that it's not for you because bees are not for Christmas, mm. as it were. They're certainly not for the summer. They're not just things you put in the back garden and breathe air. They need feeding. They need to be um, sensibly and sympathetically um, inspected, and they need a good location to live in. And we shouldn't uh, ever forget that they're livestock. They need to be treated well. They need to be fed well. And it's our responsibility as human beings do that and to ensure that they can live their natural life uh, in the best possible way in a crowded urban city like London. Mm. Well, it's fascinating, Dale. We could probably talk about it for another half an hour, but we've got to run. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, Dale Gibson, founder of Bermondsey Street Bees. Uh, if you fancy doing a bit of beekeeping, um, as Dale says, don't just launch yourself at it. You know, learn about it. Uh, go and find some other beekeepers and learn from them before you do it. But, I mean, they are fascinating creatures and honey is delicious. So... Uh, that's been a very, very good homeschooling, I would say. Uh, hopefully you might have learned something uh, and maybe got enthused about something as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.